I am a diaspora. In America, I go by Korean American. And um, it wasn't always comfortable to, to be uh, the only family in the neighborhood that was not Caucasian. But it wasn't until I met other Korean diaspora friends that I was really confronted with what diaspora means. Because in my first trip to a, an undisclosable country, teaching <laughs> Uh, tucked away illegally <laughs> and teaching through the night because during the day there was a danger of being discovered. Um, but uh, in the afternoon, a young man came to me and said, if your God is so gracious and loving, why is it that he sent your family to the USA and so many of us who are Koreans ended up under Stalin's genocide and other struggles and persecutions that some of the Korean diasporas in Central Asia um, and China and various other places experienced. Um, so what does it mean to be a diaspora person? That was my personal contact. What does the world look like today? In year 2015, the UN classified 244 million people as international migrants. In fact, the number of global migrants is increasingly increasing slightly faster than is the global population. This trend is unlikely to be abated in near future. The United Kingdom is one of the 10 most popular destinations for migrants, as you know. And in year 2015, Immigrants comprised 13% of your total population. So who are these people? Some of them are highly skilled professionals desired by both the sending and the destination countries. In fact, some are permitted to be dual citizens as nations seek to hold on to their most talented. A significant portion of migrants, however, are refugees, asylum seekers, and even illegal or undocumented people. The UN reported an estimated 15.1 million refugees in, in mid-2015. Also in the same year, Syria became the world's ninth ranked sending country with about 5 million Syrian natives now residing outside. Quite a big crowd living in Lebanon, you'll hear later. So what do they have to do with the church? The unprecedented, unprecedented global human migration has intensified multicultural or cross-cultural engagement in destination nations. And of course, these demographic changes inevitably have their impact on the world's religious structures. During the last few decades, we've seen how Christianity became a world religion, just as Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism have also come to live in your next door neighborhoods. This picture includes, leaves us with existentially and theologically uncomfortable, burdensome questions. For the question is not merely what do they believe, because that's disturbing enough for some people. It is what will they believe? What will they believe? Because that 
compels us to do something about it. Not too long ago, Christian missionaries were the migrants who had traveled far and learned to survive cross-culturally in order to share the gospel. Today, however, the task of the world mission is more complex, but more near to us, but also more confronting because of the waves of people on the move. For instance, how should ordinary Christians engage with the internationals that have come to live in their street, study with their children, and work in their company? What are they to do when the otherness of the in incoming diaspora communities do things uncomfortable or offensive to their sense of propriety? Because they don't just come with their exotic food or learn to conform to British ways today. No, their presence is changing the Great Britain and many other countries wherever they are and what it means also to be the church. For the diaspora Christians or diaspora Christians, how are they to cultivate a new identity and a sense of belonging far from their birth countries? How should they engage with the local Christians who present invisible barriers, barricades, borders, in suspicion or disdain of the Christian otherness of the diaspora believers? Actually, my focus today is not on diaspora mission strategies, however, because I want to turn to the scripture to look at three representative narratives to delineate the relevance of diaspora to the church's identity and mission. The first narrative. The Greek term diaspora means dispersion or scattering. It was initially used to refer to the Jewish deportation and exile enforced by Nebuchadnezzar. But the trajectory of biblical diaspora or scatter begins from Genesis 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. The story ends with God's punishment that brought about diversification or confusion of language and scattering of people. When recasted from the perspective of a divine salvation history, however, it reveals how God used these punitive actions to restrain human efforts to establish security by centralization, i.e. the large megacity, and absolutization of civilization, i.e. the tower. Through scattering, God turned away these people from the deadly path of self-idolization and gave them new beginnings. The only thing is they had to do this in scattered in different corners of the earth. The second narrative. In Jeremiah 29, which functions like a trope, quintessentially important to delineating the inseparable relationship between diaspora and Israel's identity and purpose, we can also under, we can understand better the, what, what diaspora might mean to us today. Jeremiah 29, 6 makes clear that it is God who is in control of Israel's diaspora. God says, I have carried you into exile, but why? What kind of God shows off for having sent his very own chosen to be so utterly defeated? Well, the God of Israel is unique. 
not like the counterfeit gods fashioned by human imagination. So, counterproductive to the punitive reasons for dispersion and exile, God's message to the Jewish exile is to flourish rather than to mourn and decline. So God says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. And God continues to say, basically get married, have children, have grandchildren, have great-grandchildren. Hmm. The exile, the diaspora, is not going to let, is not going to go away anytime soon. The exiled Israelites were not just to endure for or falter into a hiatus from living constructively. No, they were to bloom where they were planted. Only in the land ruled by their subjugators, their enemies. Furthermore, God tells the exiles, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The message seems clear. The exiles were not to be shaped by the traumatic and humiliating memory of the forced deportation and dispersion. No, they were not allowed to remain victims. Instead, the diaspora Israelites were to take the exile, the scatter, as a new divine provision for thriving in life, not merely by creating little pockets of Israel in Babylon, but by proactively and constructively contributing to the peace and prosperity of their enemy nation. Centuries before Jesus the Messiah came to preach and fulfill the Sermon on the Mount, God had commanded Israel to make peace with their enemies, to pray for them, to pray not only for them, but specifically for their peace, their prosperity. So from here on, diaspora in the Bible functions as a metaphor for God's renewing of life, of faith, life of faith, everywhere God's people went. I might say that it is the mode of dispersion and not the settlement, which was to be the lifestyle for God's people. And this continues on in the New Testament. The third narrative in the trajectory reveals that diaspora was not just a life's condition to be embraced, but that which was fundamentally formative of Israel's identity and normative for their life. On what must have been a starry night, God gives Abraham extravagant promises of the land, home, and of countries of countless descendants, the heirs. But the promises include a distressful calling of Abraham's prosperity to live in diaspora slaves for four centuries. Consequently, a tension is created between the promise of the land and of a rooted life and the prolonged dislocation and misery. The tension seems to undercut the prospect of fully enjoying the gift. It is precisely this tension or a fissure, however, that unveils a surprisingly relevant and seminal message for today's global diaspora Christians. 
For after Israel finally becomes a political nation, God commands them to remember and celebrate annually their diasporic root. During the Feast of the First Fruits, they were to recite before God, a wandering Aramean was my ancestor. What a heritage. What a contrary thing to confess. Therefore, Israel's cultic reenactment of the diaspora heritage makes the status or made the status and condition of diaspora formative, normative of their identity. In other words, Israel's ultimate heritage was not to be rooted in the land or in its bountiful produce, but, or in the nation itself, in fact, but it was to be rooted in their resident alien status with God as their ultimate Lord, the only Lord. There's more. The resident alien diasporic identity also structured Israel to practice a remarkably forward-looking social ethics. In stark contrast to the Egyptians, who had enslaved them in their diaspora, Israel was to treat aliens and strangers in their land with inclusiveness, compassion, and generosity. God's command to them was, invite the foreigners residing among you to rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. So Israel's remembering of their diasporic heritage and their treatment of the diasporas living in their land were to function as a litmus test for their social consciousness and godliness. As such, diaspora was pivotal in the formation of Israel's identity and practice of their faith. So what does all of these things have to do with the church today, its identity, and its mission? Like the old Jewish diaspora, the first century Christians scattered because of persecution, but under God's sovereign control. The new Christians were diaspora themselves, the strangers and exiles on the earth, participating in God's mission until the coming consummation at the return of Jesus Christ. So we are not just British, not just Americans, we are also the strangers and aliens, also the citizens of kingdom of heaven. Strangers on this land, the citizens of kingdom of heaven. Whereas the Old Testament diaspora was rooted in the tension between divine punishment and blessings, the new Christian diaspora in the New Testament was clearly presented as God's subversive mission or strategy. According to both the Old and the New Testaments, God's mission and diaspora were inseparably bound in identity formation and praxis of God's people. So despite the persecution and suffering, the church's diaspora had no connection in the New Testament to divine punishment. In fact, the New Testament diaspora quintessentially embodied the incarnational mission of Jesus Christ, whose earthly life, in fact, began as a refugee. Jewish diaspora Christians played a significant role in the birth and expansion of the church because they were providentially equipped to do cross-cultural mission 
to the Gentiles. Moreover, the Jewish diaspora Christians left behind the legacy of constructing the identity of faith in Christ out of their struggles in the diaspora and within the new community of the church, which included Gentiles. And thus was achieved the new identity and new unity in Christ through God's eschatological gift, the Holy Spirit. Paul was a paradigmatic example in this. As a Jewish diaspora, Paul was a ready-made cross-culture missionary to the Gentiles. He contributed indelibly to sharpening a theology of belonging to Christ and to one another in view of God's present and coming reign. So Jews, Gentiles, male or female, one in Christ. The New Testament diaspora, therefore, resonates powerfully with the people on the move as well as with the resident aliens of the host nations. For diasporas today, the same gospel message may transform the very purpose for which they find themselves in the diaspora setting, whether or not they were economic voluntary migrants or driven out refugees. God is commissioning them, and by the way, I don't mean to make light of the refugee experience of the people at all, just trying to offer a perspective according to what I have found in scripture. God is commissioning them to labor and move with the purpose of bearing witness to Christ rather than merely chasing after a higher living standard. Or God is giving them a status, a place in his reign, a dignity to build up their identity. In this way, the state of diaspora might expose, actually, the biblically unsound aspirations and pride and foundations for our identity. So the challenge, we actually have the freedom to be different. So are we experiencing, we must decide, a mission of Kairos or a dangerous chronos full of counterproductive conflicts and threats? And I don't say this lightly, I am, after all, an American citizen, and I must live up to what that means. If Kairos, how clearly can the church see God's providential plan in the global diaspora? If you agree, wouldn't you want to race toward the big picture unfolding before us in this Kairos, in this missional Kairos? I mean, the eschatological unfolding of God's reign through the present global people movements. I will close by giving you three stories as a way of throwing questions to you and to myself. The first story, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the borderland or the edge of Jericho, geographically and morally. Living on the walls of Jericho, her belongings, her belonging was very precarious and never full. She lived in the nebulous place of alienation and marginalization. She was useful to the people inside, but not necessarily because she was a prominent citizen. Among all the Canaanites, however, it was she 
who demonstrated faith in Yahweh. And it was she who was chosen by God to settle in the promised land. Out of all the people on earth, it was she who came to be recorded in the lineage of David and of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So I ask us, who are the Rahabs of our generation? Where are they? Can it be that the church in my city make her or be, uh, can, it, can the church in my city be for her the promised land, welcoming her to live next door? Diasporas have faces and destinies that God has planned for them. There's another story that reminds me that the church is not a building, but people, not a culture, but something that is intrinsic to our identity. I heard it from a woman who had escaped from North Korea as a refugee in the dead of the winter, and it does get very extremely cold in that part of the world in the winter. But the winter is the best time to escape from North Korea because you can walk through the river that divides the North Korea and China borders. Difficult journey, finally made it. When they got into a safe house, usually operated by Christians, everybody was quietly but busily washing, thawing out their frozen fingers and feet and doing whatnot. And she saw her 80-some-year-old father crouched in the corner of that small house, murmuring to himself. She felt alarmed. When she went near him, she heard him singing to himself. It was a song she had never heard before, because in North Korea, you can only sing propaganda songs. And the song he sang probably was one of the first hymns composed by first-generation Christians in Pyongyang. He sang, just as a fish cannot live outside of water, a Christian cannot live outside the church. Nobody knew that he was Christian. He was actually a seminary student, 20-year-old, when the Korean War broke out. Everybody fled to South. He could not because his parents were ill and aged. In all those years, he never revealed that he was Christian. But in all those years, he never forgot that he's Christian. He's the church. He never forgot that he is connected forever to the body of Christ. He never forgot that there are people that call themselves the body of Christ together with him. What are, and the question for us is that are we willing to be the body of Christ with him? Because among the diaspora are people like him. I often meet refugees and visit refugee camps. And what I, the only reason I can survive encountering these people time and time again in my unworthiness is by remembering that we together are the body of Christ. And there is a time that is coming and coming soon when we will have none of this, when we will have glorious body and we and we will be able to worship before the throne of God. The diasporas are not just nameless people, undocumented people. 
the question for us, I suppose, is what will they believe and what will we do to make an impact on what they will believe?